Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, a major breakthrough in the Israel-Hamas war. The first hostages in Hamas captivity have now been released, but it wasn't for free. Palestinians were seen celebrating what they got in return. Jason Perry reports. No American hostages among the released. What challenges are lying ahead as President Biden warns that he doesn't trust Hamas to do anything right? Iris Tao at the White House. Multiple attacks against Jews and Muslims this week. Hate crimes continue affecting everyday Americans. Arian Pastar explains how a war thousands of miles away is impacting people here in the U.S. A key member of a Mexican drug cartel could soon face justice here in the U.S. Who is he and what does he have to do with America's fentanyl crisis? Critical sticking points remain in multiple Republican spending bills. Melina Weiskup tells us where these divisions lie as Congress is poised to face more disputes upon returning to D.C. next week. 34 people arrested in Dublin, Ireland after a riot sweeps across the city. Hundreds took to the streets in reaction to the stabbing of three children by an alleged immigrant. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. Day one of the temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas appears to be going on as planned. Both Israel and Hamas have kept their parts in the agreement today, releasing prisoners for hostages. NTD's Jason Perry has the update. Day one of the four-day ceasefire between Israel and Hamas terrorists appears to be going as planned. On Friday, Hamas released 24 hostages, handing them over to Egyptian authorities at the Rafah crossing. The hostages who were released included 13 Israeli women and children, along with 11 Thai and Filipino farm workers who apparently were also kidnapped during the massacre on October 7th. The hostages received medical checkups soon after arriving in Egypt. And then from Egypt, they were taken to the Karem Shalom crossing in Israel, where they were handed over to Israeli authorities. The Israel Defense Forces released video of a convoy showing the moment those former hostages entered Israeli territory. Israelis cheered them on as they returned to the country. But emotions remain mixed and unsettled for others, as approximately 215 hostages are still in Hamas captivity. This woman is a relative of two hostages. I will be a, a lot of pressure, stress. I want to know that they will be here. I hope to see Eitan. He is a child. He is alone in the hands of terrorists. And I want to know that he's okay, and I want to hug him. And earlier on Friday, this man in Israel expressed some skepticism about the hostage deal. It's very confusing because um, I think that uh, terror should not give, uh, we should not give a price to the terrorists. And uh, the lesson they take from, the, from this uh, issue that if they uh, take hostages, they get what they want. So I think the government should be very strong. 
Also on Friday, Israel kept its part of the deal, releasing 39 Palestinian prisoners, including 24 women and 15 teenage males. Israel's spokesperson said this about the release. Look, the deal was not easy. It's never easy to release prisoners from jails who have been convicted of violent offenses. And the prisoners we are going to be releasing from Israeli jails, many of them have been convicted of attempted murder, of stabbing people, of shooting people. It's never easy to do that, but it's a price that we're paying because we will not abandon our children in the hands of the pedophile rapists of Hamas. This Palestinian woman spent eight years in an Israeli prison. The thing that affected me the most was that I did not know anything about my parents or my family, and I used to dream about them a lot, both good and bad dreams. And I would try to interpret the dreams a bit, but I had faith in God, and I used to pray for them a lot. Also on Friday, before the hostage prisoner exchange took place, Israeli tanks were seen leaving the Gaza Strip. And as of Friday evening, there were no major reports of bombings or rocket attacks as the first day of the temporary ceasefire concluded. Jason Perry, NTD News. Despite playing a key role in negotiating the ceasefire, the U.S. has not seen any of its own citizens released in the initial group. President Biden says he's hopeful, but doesn't know when the next group will be freed or who will be among them. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. A senior administration official has told us before that three Americans are expected to be among the 50 hostages to be released as part of a temporary ceasefire deal. But at least in the first group that was released today, there was no American. And President Biden says more hostages should be freed soon, but it's unclear if Americans are among them. Watch. We expect more hostages to be released tomorrow and more the day after and more the day after that. When will the first American hostages be released since none were included today? We don't know when that will occur, but we're going to be expected to occur. So it's my hope and expectation will be soon. President Biden specifically mentioned two American women and a toddler who just turned four today. While vowing to not give up until all American hostages are freed, President Biden says today marks a long journey of healing for some children. The teddy bears waiting to greet those children at the hospital are a stark reminder of the trauma these children have been through and at such a very young age. All this is as Biden says he doesn't trust Hamas to do anything right. I only trust Hamas to respond to pressure. And Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying today that he's committed to getting all hostages back. And we're committed to achieve all of the war's objectives. Israel has vowed to continue fighting forcefully after the temporary pause. But President Biden saying today that chances are real that this four-day ceasefire could be extended by a day or even longer. Back to you. A growing divide among Americans, the Israel-Hamas war is thousands of miles away, but continues to cause clashes here in the U.S. NTD's Arianne Pastar brings us details of several attacks this week. Hate crimes keep making the headlines. Attacks against Jews and Muslims alike are a spillover effect of a conflict on the other side of the planet. On Thursday, a former aide to President Obama was released from custody in New York City. Former National Security Council Chief Stuart Seldowitz allegedly insulted a food truck vendor and his belief. Watch. Did you rape your daughter like Muhammad did? What do you think of that? People who use the term the Quran as a toilet. Does it bother you? He's now reportedly facing hate crime and aggravated harassment charges. 
After the incident, Saldowitz told NBC he insulted the man because he allegedly said he supports Hamas. You mean you're okay with the raping of, of women, the, the killing of children, the taking of hostages and the killing of 1,200 people uh, in, in Israel? And he said, yes, it was all for Palestine. Also on Thanksgiving Day, an attack on the home of a prominent Jewish leader in California. In this video, you can see protesters throwing smoke bombs into the yard of Michael Tuchin. He's the president of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. And this video shows red paint poured on the sidewalk in front of his house, apparently representing blood. A group called People's City Council LA seems to be behind the protest. They posted this video of the incident as it was happening. Now this whole controversy surrounding the conflict in the Middle East is especially affecting young Democrats. The Washington Post, for example, reports that students at the University of Michigan who voted for President Biden are now referring to him as Genocide Joe. A poll by NBC released less than a week ago showed 70% of Democrat voters aged 18 to 34 disapprove of Biden's handling of the war. And terror threats in Europe are on the rise. The head of Germany's largest police union warns of Islamists radicalized by the ongoing conflict. He told Reuters on Friday, it's only a question of time until these people carry out crimes. It's not always about them having a bomb. They can drive a car into a gathering or attack with a knife. And in Sweden, Greta Thunberg was seen taking part in an anti-Israel protest this week, chanting crush Zionism in Swedish. Many of the participants defended Hamas, saying that the terror group's actions against civilians were purely self-defense. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. A key member of a Mexican drug cartel has been arrested, and the U.S. wants Mexico to hand him over quickly to face justice here. Nicknamed El Nini, Nestor Isidro Perez Salas headed security for the Sinaloa cartel. He was said to be one of the most ruthless drug figures in Mexico. He's been indicted on a series of charges here in the U.S., including drug trafficking, money laundering and witness retaliation. The U.S. had offered up to $3 million for information leading to his arrest. He was taken into custody by Mexican authorities on Wednesday. The Sinaloa cartel is largely responsible for the huge influx of fentanyl into the U.S. in recent years. Over 73,000 people died of fentanyl overdoses last year in the U.S. Congress has delayed a government spending showdown until after the holidays, but the temporary fix only kicks divisive budget decisions down the road for a few months. And lawmakers still have the responsibility of passing full-year funding bills, which they'll take up again next week. NTD's Melina Weisskopf has more on what challenges lie ahead as House Republicans again try to work out their disagreements. Speaker Mike Johnson, when elected, vowed to stick to an ambitious timeline of passing all 12 annual government funding bills through the Republican-led House and to begin negotiations with the Democrat-controlled Senate by the end of this month. But that schedule didn't go according to plan because of disputes within the Republican Party that led to leadership failing to pass many of these bills, like funding for the Department of Justice and FBI, transportation, health and human services, and more. Here's how Congressman Troy Nails explained the situation to me earlier this month. I think it's looking like we're still confused um, and we are not united. This one issue here or one issue there, I tell you, we keep it up. We won't, we won't keep the House. 
One of the sticking points that's causing these bills to be stalled is abortion. For example, an agriculture bill is in limbo because there's language in it that would restrict access to the abortion pill, mifepristone. Abortion also plays a role in why another bill is stalled, that is the financial services and general government funding bill. Many Republicans feel pressure to hold a hard line on the abortion issue, but other Republicans feel pressure to take a more lax stance. The moderates are standing our ground. Um, a lot of us in swing districts and a lot of us that want to be very respectful of where the American people are and aren't on these social issues are standing our ground and setting some limits as to what can get jammed into these bills. As for the funding for the DOJ and FBI, some lawmakers who've long been critical of these agencies, like Congressman Bob Good, say that the bill didn't go far enough to defund practices that led to weaponization of the government. Then, of course, there's funding for Israel and Ukraine, both of which the House and Senate have failed to come to a compromise on just yet. All of this, the two chambers have to work out when they return to D.C. next week. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Wisecup, NTD News. Turning our attention now to Ireland, violence sweeping the streets of Dublin after an attacker stabbed five people, including three young children, near an elementary school on Thursday. Irish police have so far arrested 34 people in connection with the disturbance. The incident marks Ireland's worst unrest in decades, as hundreds clashed with law enforcement and looted more than a dozen stores. The nation's prime minister said the riot was disgraceful and that the damage is likely to be in the tens of millions. So far, the main suspect's nationality remains unknown, but there has been speculation he's an Algerian immigrant. He is reportedly a man in his 50s and is in serious condition in a Dublin hospital. New details on the two people killed in the vehicle explosion at the U.S.-Canada border crossing on Wednesday. New York police today identified the pair as Kurt and Monica Villani. They were both 53 and from Grand Island, New York. Law enforcement sources told CNN that the couple planned to attend a concert in Canada, but the performance was canceled. The couple then spent the night briefly visiting a casino on the U.S. side of the border before speeding off toward the Rainbow Bridge border crossing. According to the FBI field office in Buffalo, New York, the vehicle drove less than a mile to the bridge where it hit a curb on the U.S. side of the border, flew into the air, crashed and then exploded. The incident remains under investigation. Disgraced former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo hit with a lawsuit alleging sexual assault. It comes from his former executive assistant, Brittany Camisso. She filed a legal summons at the Albany Supreme Court on Wednesday, just before the deadline for the Adult Survivors Act. Camisso worked at Cuomo's executive chamber from 2019 to 2021. She alleges that while there, Cuomo subjected her to, quote, humiliating and demeaning tasks, hugs, kisses, sexual touching and forcible touching. Camisso had previously accused the former governor of groping her. Her previous allegation led to a misdemeanor criminal complaint against Cuomo. Coming up today is Black Friday, but where did Black Friday originate? And why is it called Black Friday? We delve into the dark history. Retailers are offering deep Black Friday discounts to try to get shoppers to spend. What will some of those discounts look like? Don Ma joins us to discuss. And whether you're shopping online or in person, beware of scammers after your personal information. Law enforcement shares tips on how to avoid three common types of scams after the break.
Welcome back. Today is Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, when shoppers get big discounts all over the world. But where did Black Friday originate and why is it called Black Friday? And today's Virginia Gibson tells us more. Black Friday. It's one of my favorite days of the year. A day when people all over the world chase huge discounts. Whether it be waiting in line super oh, yeah, early yeah. in Massachusetts. Just being out here, you know, it's, it's early in the morning, but you only live once. On the streets of New York City. I would like to buy clothes in my size. Or even in Russia. Black Friday originated in the 1950s in America in the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia's police officers created the term to describe the chaos as shoppers and tourists would flood the street after Thanksgiving in advance of the big Army-Navy football game. All cops had to work through the holidays, deal with excessive crowds, and stop shoplifters who were taking advantage of the mayhem. In the 1980s, retailers reinvented the phrase, creating the legend that it refers to the day when retailers finally make a profit. Back then, on financial statements, net losses were recorded in red, and net profits were recorded in black. The story stuck, and Black Friday's dark origin has been more or less forgotten. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. Retailers around the world are hoping millions of shoppers will take advantage of Black Friday discounts. With many consumers squeezed by persistent inflation and higher interest rates, U.S. holiday spending is expected to rise at the slowest pace in five years. We spoke with NTD Business's Don Ma for details. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, great to be here. To begin, what did the crowds look like today? Well, a record 130 million people are expected to uh, shop in stores and online in the U.S. Uh, this Black Friday. But it seems like some places actually might now see less foot traffic. So at 6 a.m. on Friday at a Walmart in Milford, Connecticut, uh, the parking lot was only half full. And at a nearby Kohl's, one resident who visits the same stores with her family every Black Friday said that uh, it was actually a lot quieter this year. And this is potentially uh, as a result of the rise of online shopping and may have reduced the importance of Black Friday as a single day event. And according to a survey of over 8,000 people conducted by the National Retail Federation, U.S. shoppers plan to spend an average of $875 on holiday purchases. So crowds uh, at some places are still uh, pretty significant, but others uh, a, a bit less this year. Wow, and on that note, what kind of deals are we seeing from retailers? Right. Uh, some retailers, uh, you know, hold their biggest uh, markdowns uh, for the Thanksgiving holiday weekend. And big box players, uh, that's including Walmart, Lowe's, uh, Home Depot, maintained or deepened their advertised discounts. And retailers from Macy's to Amazon now launch deals as early as October and often offer additional discounts closer to Christmas. And Best Buy now is offering between 100 
and $1,600 off electronics. Uh, so that's including laptops, flat screen TVs, uh, KitchenAid mixers. Now, whether those deals will persuade inflation-weary consumers to uh, open their wallets uh, is actually the biggest worry for retailers uh, this Friday because uh, a downturn in luxury spending uh, you know, has prompted department stores, uh, including Bergdorf Goodman and Nordstrom to offer steep discounts on items uh, like Balenciaga shoes or Oscar de la Renta earrings. Wow. Well, Don Mon, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. For most of us, the holidays are a time for giving and goodwill, but some use the season to take advantage of shoppers. Law enforcement share tips to avoid three common scams that could spoil your Black Friday and Cyber Monday shopping. NTD's David Lamb reports. Black Friday and Cyber Monday are some of the busiest shopping experience in the U.S. But be on alert. According to law enforcement, scammers could be trying to scam people through fake stores, gift cards, and shipping notifications. Glendale Police Department in Southern California says scammers use fake stores to promote great deals on social media. Be sure to verify the spelling of the URL. Fake sites often have one letter that is off. And North Carolina DOJ says there may be a deals galore over the holidays, many on social media, but not all of them are legitimate. Carefully read reviews and look for security credentials on websites. Gift cards, super convenient for the holidays, but some are phony, so make sure to buy them directly from the cash register. And if buying online, do a reverse search on the seller to see if they're legitimate. When you're expecting a lot of packages over the holidays, shippers often provide delivery updates. But knowing this, scammers use fake shipping notifications via email or text pretending to be legitimate companies, attempting to collect personal information. Authorities recommend tracking packages on official shipping sites such as UPS, USPS, or FedEx. David Lamb, NTD News. Coming up, what are international players like China hoping to get out of the Israel-Hamas war? Retired General Robert Spaulding gives us his insight. And right-leaning politicians score recent victories from New Zealand to the Netherlands to Argentina. An economist and author joins us to discuss what this trend means after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. Hamas released the first batches of hostages, including 13 Israelis, 10 Thai nationals and a Filipino. In exchange, Israel released the first 39 Palestinians from its jails. President Biden said no Americans were freed. The Biden administration is seeking to extradite a former security boss for the Sinaloa cartel to the U.S. Nestor Isidoro Perez Salas, also known as El Nini, was arrested by Mexican security forces on Wednesday. And violent riots swept the streets of Dublin, Ireland after an attacker stabbed five people, including three young children, near an elementary school. Hundreds clashed with law enforcement and looted stores, making this Ireland's worst unrest in decades. As Hamas releases the first group of Israeli hostages, what can we expect to happen next? And looking at the broader picture, how are international players like China viewing this war? Joining us now to discuss, we have retired Brigadier General Robert Spaulding, National Security Analyst and Epic Times contributor. 
General Spalding, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you. It's great to be back. We're seeing that Hamas has released the first batch of hostages under the deal with Israel. Now, how do you view the geopolitical impacts of this deal? Well, I think Israel is always uh, going to pressure Hamas to return the um, captured Israelis. And I think you're going to see, you know, as long as they continue to release hostages, there will likely be a delay in the conflict. But as soon as um, that either stops uh, or Israel believes that they're not going to get any more hostages, I, I see the conflict picking back up because I don't think the end result that Israel was looking for uh, has changed. They want to see an end to Hamas, and that's going to require that they do more work. How do you see Iran and other countries like China viewing this, especially given that the Chinese Communist Party has been pushing for a ceasefire while not condemning Hamas's October 7th attack? Well, it's, it's completely disingenuous um, on the part of the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, they, they claim that they support Muslims while in their own country locking Muslims in the concentration camps. So, the fact that they think that they say that they support support Hamas, uh, and then they want to interact with other uh, leaders of Muslim nations as some you know you know altruistic country that really supports you know not killing Muslims. They're just it's not true, and it is entirely self-serving. And in, in in this case, what they're trying to do is essentially use this war to pull the Gulf states closer to China. And, you know, this is always uh, going to be their strategy. They want to they want to divide the world into those that, you know, hate the United States and support China in this case. So it's not really about Hamas. It's not really about Muslims. They they they're not they don't care about those things. What they care about is splitting the world and bringing as many nations to their side as, as possible. On that note, we are hearing leaders from South Africa, Russia, China, Brazil, and India, or the BRICS bloc, calling for both Israel and Hamas to, quote, exercise maximum restraint. Do you see a new coalition forming on the world stage that is anti-U.S.? Well, you know, I think, um, you know, China would have wanted uh, probably a much stronger statement from the BRICS given you know what's recently happened in Argentina and you see you know a kind of a bounce back from this very radicalized progressive um, governments that are going up around the world uh, and that's you know began with Argentina I think you're starting to see a swing back to more um, moderate position uh, as citizens just become fed up with um, all of this very very uh, progressive, you know, almost radical, um, you know, behavior on the part of not just communist countries, but, you know, even uh, seemingly democratic countries. So, no, I don't think the BRICS are all of a sudden um, going over to China's side. I think China would have wanted a much stronger statement. Um, but I think looking from the statement on its face, it looks like, seems like some of the other nations pulled back from a more extremist stance supporting China. Uh, and, and supporting, of course, Hamas. Speaking of what we just saw happening in Argentina, China did pour $6.5 billion ahead of that election trying to get a minister to win. How do you view that development there, especially given China's own economic woes? 
Well, I think it's become quite evident that many of the elites of a lot of these free countries have been in league with the Chinese Communist Party for their own benefit, for their own financial well-being and wealth. And I think citizens are fed up. They, it's it's quite obvious now um, how you know the financial institutions, the corporate sector works together with China to basically you know, deprive people of jobs. So, you know, part of that was moving all the manufacturing to China. I think they're certainly using the Belt and Road Initiative to exploit um, these countries' resources and wealth. I mean, for example, they don't even allow the citizens themselves to work on the projects. They bring in their own Chinese workers. So everything uh, in terms of these relationships has been to benefit the rise of the Chinese Communist Party and China's overall wealth, uh, productivity, and now, as we see, their, their, their growing military strength. So I think that's become clear to citizens. They are starting to recognize that it's important to deglobalize, to bring back uh, industry to their own countries, to provide for their own citizens. And I think this is just the first indication of something that's, that's probably going to have broader support around the world. General Spaulding, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. A new governing agenda, New Zealand's National Party today agreeing to form a coalition government with two other conservative parties. This after weeks of intense closed-door negotiations over policies and ministerial roles. Under the new agreement, the coalition will focus primarily on cutting taxes, bolstering law enforcement and lowering inflation. Also on the agenda, a national interest test, which seeks to detach the country from agreements with multinational entities such as the UN and the World Health Organization. New Zealand abandoned its previous government, led by the Labour Party, after six years of rule. In addition to New Zealand, right-leaning politicians have scored recent victories in the Netherlands and Argentina. Is this a worldwide trend? We spoke with Daniel Lacaille, chief economist at Tresses, to find out more. Daniel Lacaille, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure. You're actually currently in the Netherlands. That's where you're joining us from. And that's after an outsider won the election there. This follows a similar one that we just saw in Argentina as well. How much did the current economic factors in those countries play into these election wins? Quite a bit, actually. If you uh, think of what has made such a drastic change in the political landscape in the Netherlands, it is because of elevated inflation, continuous intervention from the government uh, affecting the primary sector, agriculture, etc. Uh, so basically a drastic reaction against uh, the, the negative uh, inflationary and economic situation, but also uh, the views on immigration and the on government intervention on environmental issues. In the case of Argentina, it's the desperate situation of the economy in Argentina. It's got 140% inflation, 40% poverty. And on top of that, in a country that produces oil and has an incredible farming industry, uh, there's scarcity of gasoline and scarcity of meat. I want to get to Argentina, but sticking with the Netherlands first, Wilders is seeking a Dutch Brexit in the Netherlands, noting the climate policies that are really hurting the farmers in particular. But what can one man do? What do we expect to see here? 
Well, I think what we can expect at least is a significant reversal of the misguided so-called environmental policy because they're not environmental. They're interventionist policies. They haven't really improved. In fact, they have worsened the situation for the people in the Netherlands. So I think quite a big reversal in that front and quite a strong reversal as well in both the economic policies inside the Netherlands, but also regarding the European Union, because the Netherlands uh, is suffering elevated inflation because of the monetary policy of the European Central Bank and also a dire economic uh, environment when it should not be in such, an, uh, in such a situation due to the, uh, well, many of the policies that have been imported from the European Union. So all those things can be tweaked uh, and at least improved upon. Speaking of inflation, you did mention now turning to Argentina, the 140% inflation over there now. Javier Millet is saying he's going to shut down the central bank, calling that non-negotiable. How much does the central bank fit into the inflation we're seeing? Well, certainly the central bank is one side of the coin and a very important one, obviously printing uh, pesos. In a, in, a, in a way that is completely incredible. But that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is fiscal policy, a country that has more protectionist measures than many of the communist regimes uh, that we know, like Cuba or North Korea. So it needs to open the economy, it needs to cut spending, and it certainly needs to stop printing pesos and stop this inflationary nightmare. Millet is an economist, and now he says he does have a plan to fight inflation, and that's dollarization. He is wanting to change the pesos to the U.S. dollar. How likely is that to succeed? Well, it's inevitable, because one of the problems in Argentina is that many of the politicians did not want to recognize the big elephant in the room, which is that the peso is a completely invalid currency that has failed. Uh, Argentina has more than 15 different exchange rates of the peso, all of them completely false, implemented by the government. And the peso is not used by citizens in Argentina whenever they can. So actually, uh, dollarization is already evident within the Argentine economy because no Argentine citizen, I mean, at least no sane Argentine citizen, is saving in pesos. and Certainly, all of the relevant transactions and purchases that Argentine citizens uh, implement are already dollarized. So it's just a question of recognizing that the peso is a failed currency, like Ecuador did at the time, and like other countries uh, did as well. Sticking on the economic note, but zooming out, New Zealand actually just has the center-right national party that just returned to power after six years of a more left-leaning one. Now, this prime minister is also putting a heavy focus on changing economic policies, as well as seeking to detach the country from global globalist entities like the WHO. How do you read these right-wing trends that we're seeing around the world? Is this a trend? I think it is a trend. I think uh, what we're seeing globally is a uh, is that a lot of uh, citizens in many countries are discontent with 
the left-wing policies aimed at uh, sort of engineering a society that hurts the average citizen in many countries. The middle class is being obliterated. Many of the uh, policies that have been implemented are purely interventionist. They're not even environmentally uh, friendly or uh, really social policies, but they have been implemented with a view of increasing control over citizens. And I believe that in democracies, uh, most of the, of the population is starting to get really angry about all these things that are sold as socially acceptable or environmentally positive and end up actually being negative, both environmentally and socially. Quite fascinating indeed. Daniel Lacaye, thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure. Coming up, Los Angeles is preparing for a parade. The annual Hollywood Christmas Parade draws in performers, celebrities and a toy drive. Ruby Lovell gives us a preview. And in Olympic news, parole was granted for famed double amputee sprinter Oscar Pistorius. NTD's Dave Martin will join us in the studio to discuss his fall from grace when we come back. Welcome back. The holiday season is in full swing. NTD's Ruby Lovell is in Los Angeles where she gets a sneak peek at preparation for the upcoming Hollywood Christmas Parade. In Hollywood today, celebrating the 91st anniversary of the Hollywood Christmas Parade, a fantastic festive event that involves cultural dances, celebrities, actors, musicians, magic, everything that you can think of and today has been a taster of what is to come we've seen some cultural dancing talked to some celebrities some of the organizers and we met santa too and this event supports marines toys for tots that is an initiative that was started back in 1927 to give impoverished children of marines toys that they can open and put a smile on their face on christmas day and that has raised over 24 million toys for tots last year. How long has this been going, uh, this, this Marine Toys for Tots? So it actually started in 1947 uh, here in, uh, North, uh, in uh, South LA County, I believe. Major Hendricks and his wife, it, it was adopted by the Marine Corps in 1947. And then since then, last year was their 75th anniversary. This year, 70, 76 years. But this year is uh, Disney Ultimate Drive. It's 100 years for them. So they're really helping us out and get as much awareness to the cause as possible. So You are an old hand at this. You've been doing this for about 13 years, organizing this amazing parade. Tell us all about it. Well, it's, it's a big parade that happens annually, and um, it celebrates Hollywood and everything about Hollywood. There are 87 Hollywood celebrities and VIPs in the parade. There are 16 pre-parade and parade performers. There's 10 award-winning bands. There's six larger-than-life four-story character balloons, there's three colorful floats, there's nine uh, novelties, 39 movie cars. 
and the uh, Grand Marshal of the parade this year is Colonel Paris D. Davis, who is retired. He just received the Medal of Honor, which is the highest military honor you can get. A number of celebrities um, who are going to be walking the parade and hosting events during the parade. Dwight Yoakam's going to be here. I think it's going to be really fun, so I hope people really come out. And now for your sports news, we welcome entities Dave Martin. Dave, today, former double amputee Olympic sprinter Oscar Pistorius was granted parole after spending nearly nine years in prison for killing his girlfriend. Tragic case for sure here. Why do you think it's gotten so much attention? Well, Pistorius, I mean, he was really the darling of the 2012 Summer Olympic Games. I mean, he qualified for the Olympics as a double amputee sprinter. Nobody's done that before or since. It was such an incredible story. I mean, other athletes wanted to get selfies with him. So he was pretty famous. Maybe not O.J. Simpson level famous, but close enough. It was quite a story. Then a year later, he shoots and kills his girlfriend through their bathroom door. Uh, later he said he thought she was an intruder. Now at first, they got him on a lesser murder charge, but after some outrage and some appeals, he got a more serious charge. I think he was given a 13-year sentence. So a tragic story. Now, even though he is released at age now 37, I would certainly say his uh, athletic career is over. Sad indeed. Switching gears to college football, several games are on tonight. Do any of the ranked teams playing this evening figure into the playoff picture? Yeah, you know, Oregon and Texas each have one loss. They're both ranked in the top 10, but they both need other teams to lose for them to get in. Now, the rankings still go 25 teams deep. I don't know why they do, you know, teams 11 through 25, though, because if you, if you have more than one loss, you're not making these playoffs. I mean, there's only four playoff spots to begin with, and we've got five undefeated teams, though. So there's still already a log jam at the top. For Oregon to get in, they've got to win out. They've got to beat Washington for the Pac-12. Ditto for uh, Texas in the Big 12. They do at least have the best win this year at Alabama. So neither team is in the driver's seat, but there's still some possibilities. Now in the NFL today, we did have the first ever Black Friday game. As the Dolphins beat the Jets, how does this impact the playoff field? Well, it solidifies the Dolphins' place, that's for sure. And they, they now have a two-game lead in the AFC East. They have the tied for the best record in the AFC. They are in great position. For the Jets, I mean, their slim playoff hopes are fading quickly. Of course, their hopes started fading as soon as Aaron Rodgers got hurt in the first week. They traded a lot for him. They've really used their defense to try to stay afloat. Uh, but at 4-7, and seven, I think they can only pretty much afford one more loss. So it's not really looking too great for them. Speaking of the Jets, Aaron Rodgers has certainly hinted that he might return from that Achilles injury next month. But if they fall out of the playoff picture, what's his incentive here? I mean, I'm wondering that myself. He just loves to play. I guess he's a four-time MVP winner. Now, there's only six games left after today, and he has yet to return to practice. Now, there is talk of him coming you know, the week after next, but you've got to figure at least two weeks of practice before he's game ready. So at most, I see him playing four games, but they could be four and nine and already eliminated by that point. Now, to be clear, returning from an Achilles tear after just three months has never been done in the NFL. That we're even discussing it is pretty incredible. I'd be a little bit surprised if he came back with them still out of it. But like I said, he is quite a competitor, so I wouldn't put it past him. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, too. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.